on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. Alright guys, uh, today Danny and I are going to talk about the intelligence community, and it's hard to know where to start with something that dense. You know, we have 70 to 80 years of our own history in intel operations and foreign operations, and I, I wanted to, to, to create a conversation about how would this affect ordinary people, and also how does it affect ordinary people in terms of informing them about military service. And so, um, the first uh, the first topic I want to talk about is about universities and about how the CIA creates and maintains relationships with professors across the United States. And we we don't you know there's no accounting for who that is. So a student could end up having a professor that really really pushes certain beliefs, but you don't really know why. And I think there needs to be more honesty than that, but we don't have any laws that actually govern that. So um, to start us off, I'm going to play a clip from uh, Radio Who, What, Why that uh, uh, Jeff Schlickman talks to Daniel Golden, who is a former Intel uh, community analyst. And he talks a little bit about the CIA's history as it pertains to college campuses. There's a long history of espionage agencies, the CIA in particular, being involved with universities. Talk a little bit first about that early history, about the earliest recruitment of, of kind of the best and the brightest. Well, as, as you mentioned, uh, you know, dating back to the days of the OSS, uh, the CIA's precursor, uh, there was heavy university involvement. It was, it was really kind of born out of Yale, and, uh, and they were very, uh, very close um, and then, uh, as as you, you know, what happened was there was a kind of giant split in the 60s and 70s, and there became a lot of uh, hostility and, and a gulf between them, uh, culminating in the Church Committee investigation in the mid-70s, which found that uh, at least 300 academics were secretly helping the CIA by providing leads and introductions and so on. And, and there was a backlash against that, and Harvard... Uh, adopted a set of guidelines that said no, uh, you know, no professors or students could um, could uh, undertake intelligence operations for the CIA or uh, help them unwitting help them recruit unwitting foreign students, and you know that was kind of an opportunity to uh, uh, kind of establish academic freedom. But the problem was uh, hardly any other universities adopted the Harvard guidelines, and the CIA made clear that it it wasn't going to pay any attention to them and didn't think that they, uh, you know, had any uh, validity. And so since then, uh, there there started to be a gradual reconciliation. And then after 9-11, the pace really picked up. And, and again, now universities and uh, U.S. intelligence are very close. Um, you know, and there's a lot of proliferation of, of intelligence community and Pentagon funding for, for universities, for for curriculum, for research and other things. And, and there's a whole, you know, new network of ties. And, and as you mentioned, it, it, it's not simply that it's come full circle because globalization has made a huge difference. So 
you know, we now have about a million uh, foreign students and hundreds of thousands of foreign, you know, scientists and researchers and, and professors. And, uh, you know, some of them are here to, uh, you know, uh, gain access to sensitive research or or cultivate sources on, on U.S. Uh, you know, politics and economic policy. But uh, at the same time, the FBI and the CIA are very interested in recruiting, uh, you know, well, well-connected uh, foreign students and professors and sending them home as our agents. And while in the early days, you know, uh, you know and then still now, the recruiting of U.S. citizens by U.S. intelligence is, is over, you know, they say who they are, the recruiting of the foreign students and professors is often, you know, covert and clandestine. And so globalization has, uh, has changed the picture a lot. But, uh, and, and the other aspect of it is because the U.S., uh, because of the change mood in the country and the uh, financial relationships, uh, universities turn a blind eye to all this, and uh, they allow this kind of uh, covert recruiting to go on. Um. So a couple things that, that uh, Daniel mentioned that I want to I want to discuss. Um, universities rely very greatly on federal contracts and foreign students for funding. This means that they already have arrived at a disadvantage to be manipulated or recruited by the intel community, especially an intel community that doesn't have to declare their presence on a campus. And with that in mind, you know, professors in U.S. universities, they have no obligation to declare their work with the intel community or even if they just completely agree with the intel community. Um, certainly looking at a professor's teachings, research projects, papers, things like that would ordinarily give an insight to their larger projects. But some are great about playing that very fine line between educator and outright CIA recruiter. I'm including a link in the show notes to a report um, from Vice News from 2015, which listed and ranked the most militarized universities in the US. Um, the data is a bit dated, and yet it's not specific on the intel community, but I think it's a, it's a good starting point if you're curious what schools lean the furthest to the right when it comes to the intel community and with relations with the military. When I glanced at the list, right off the top was the University of Phoenix, American Military University, and Strayer University. And these are all schools that have a really strong presence on military posts for service members working on their education. I mean, I saw all three of those signs myself when I was at the uh, Ed Center at Fort Lewis. So it, it's something to really pay attention to, especially if you're sending your kids off to college. And another thing is there's this concept or this stereotype that all colleges are these highly liberal safe spaces and that there couldn't possibly be any connection between the military and uh, the collegiate system. But, but that's empirically false, as we see from this report from who, what, why, um, as you'll see for any basic research on CIA recruiting. You know, President Eisenhower talked a long time ago in 1960, as he left office, like, about the dangers of the military industrial complex, essentially the dangers of the connection between the military and the arms contractors. But it's becoming more and more apparent that we may need to kind of expand on that title to call it the military, industrial, congressional, collegiate complex. Because if you have uh, congressmen in on it, okay, in order to create jobs uh, with the arms manufacturers in their districts, that adds the congressional piece. And if you have intelligence community, which is already becoming more militarized, uh, 
working on these colleges, you can go ahead and call it a military-industrial-congressional-collegiate complex so that all the major public institutions of American life are increasingly militarized and increasingly sort of coordinated with the growth of the intel community, which has, I would argue, really gone out of control since 9-11 over the last 17 years. And it, and it, it, it it's a... It's a self-serving and self-sustaining system. Each of these pieces ends up growing other pieces, which in turn feeds the whole monster. So if, any, if a single person is involved in any one part, they may understand what happened with them and might even critique it, but unless you understand the full circle of how this cycle of life of intel community, military community, military industrial complex, uh, university system, how all of that works together, and maybe that's something that'll get studied in more detail as time goes on. Yeah, certainly. The, the connection between the military and the intelligence community is very interesting. As you probably remember hearing, that we would often hear talk in the conventional army, which you and I were both in, about three-letter agencies or OGAs, other government agencies. And there's always this talk of how special forces in particular uh, at the highest or the darkest, as they call it, the dark soft, the dark special forces community, would would become increasingly connected with these other government agencies, by which, of course, we're talking CIA, um, FBI, even uh, potentially, as well as things like DEA. So depending on your area of operation, there, there has become this connection, uh, this nexus between the military and the intel community. And while certainly they need to work together, I think one of the dangers is the increasing militarization of intelligence which was not the, uh, the founding charter of the CIA, right? I mean, th this is not what the CIA, for example, was, was supposed to be. But the roles are becoming increasingly gray. I mean, we have an intel community now, a CIA in particular, that has its own paramilitary wing, its own agents who are armed to the teeth, who work directly with uh, uh, dark special forces in the, in the U.S. military uh, to conduct raids, we have the CIA and other intel agencies controlling their own drones and utilizing them in kill or uh, in, in basic kill missions, okay, uh, without the oversight of the military. And, and all this means that we have less congressional oversight because the fact of the matter is three-letter agencies tend to have less congressional oversight because of the aura of secrecy that surrounds them. Whereas the military is a more conventional force. You've got the Armed Services Committee. You've got the Foreign Affairs Committee. There's a good amount of oversight of what the military does. But increasingly, we have this surreptitious paramilitary force in the CIA, which is really conducting strategic level missions and killing people, uh, including civilians, by accident in places like Libya, places like Yemen, places like Pakistan, where there aren't really very many American military boots on the ground. And yet the CIA is waging sort of its own war on those states which of course has strategic implications. But of course, all of it is transparent to the American people because of the secrecy and the lack of oversight. And this is just, this is just a formula for disaster. Okay? This, is, this is a formula for executive overreach and, and potentially strategic failure. The second part of what I wanted to go through today about the CIA is about their relationship with Hollywood. And it's very hard to find military films that are nuanced, that somehow have some kind of a blending of opinions between the people that are being fought and the American forces that are fighting them. And 
I found I recently found a, a great new podcast that discusses this exact thing about the CIA's relationship with the Hollywood. It's called Clandestime. And they do direct movie reviews on Intel community connections to films. They discuss CIA ties to filmmaking since the agency began. And they discuss how pop culture and films from an Intel military community standpoint is shaped for ordinary people. So I was looking through the episodes and I immediately was drawn to one about The Rocketeer and Iron Man, two films that I absolutely loved. Now, The Rocketeer was one of my favorite movies as a kid. And for those who haven't seen it, it's about a stunt pilot from the 30s who discovers a man-wearable rocket that he uses to woo crowds at air shows and be a thorn in the side of the film's villains. Um, and the villains in the film are actually the Nazis, led by Timothy Dalton as their kind of British accent frontman who is trying to steal this rocket for use by the Third Reich. Now, just off the bat, I'm reminded of one of my favorite lines from the film. Um, Paul Sor Sorvino is in this movie, and he plays a mom boss who unknowingly works for the Nazis. And at one point in the movie where the truth, where the truth is revealed about that connection, he goes up to Timothy Dalton, sticks a 45 in his ribs, and tells him point blank, I may not make an honest buck, but I'm 100% American, and I don't work for no two-bit Nazi. Let her go. So here we have an American criminal, a guy, a member of the mob, saying that by the mere involvement of the Nazis in some way, he will reluctantly so join the side of the good guys. And it's at this point in history where the film's concerned. The film takes place prior to our involvement in the war. The Nazis have started to rise, but I want to say it was somewhere between 35 and 38, but I don't think the invasion of Poland had happened yet. And yet, we're already seeing this point of view being pushed a little harder. Um, it, it seems to reinforce that view that the Nazis were known to be this bad, that we've always... Have to, we'd always have chosen to side with the Allies in, in, in any version of history that involves the Nazis. And like Mom, Mike Pompeo saying that he knew the Iranians were cheating on the, the uh, Iran deal. It gives the impression that a group or an individual would have always done the terrible things they did, absent any historical evidence to the contrary. And understand, I, I got no desire to defend Nazis, but it's important we understand how movies like this affect us. The Patriot is a, a, an amazing film until you realize that almost everything in The Patriot has absolutely no historical context beyond, quote, the Americans fought off those British assholes and now freedom for everyone. I made that up. That's not in the movie. But I think you get the, the point I'm trying to make. You know, absolutely. And, you know, it's not really Hollywood, but we're, but we're talking about popular television shows, especially on premium cable. And, and I'm reminded of the way the Intel community is portrayed in a show like 24, which was very, very yep. popular for quite yep. some time, especially when we were in Iraq. And then a show that's ongoing like Homeland, which I'm actually a, fa I'm a fan of the show. It's really, really exciting. But in 24, constantly, over and over again, the American people are treated to a reality where torture works, mm -hmm. where torture is an acceptable way, in fact, potentially the only way to stop an attack on the United States of America. Now, it's interesting because the, the, the Senate report on enhanced interrogation techniques post 9-11, really from about, you know, the entire, it covers essentially the entire Bush administration. The Intel report of the Senate Intelligence Committee said that actually there's no evidence that torture ever worked. In fact, if anything, torture led us on a lot of wild goose chases and into a lot of uh, false sort of leads because people who are tortured or will say anything to make the torture stop. And so... We have these two realities. We have the real world, 
where FBI agents like Ali Sufan, who were very much involved with the FBI, tell us that, look, giving the guys a pack of cigarettes and building trust with them, that's what got us the information, not CIA torture. And we got these reports from the Senate that make it rather clear uh, that, that, that this was a complete failure, the torture program, beyond its immoral aspect. But in 24, which is what most Americans are watching, most Americans don't have time to read like thousand page senatorial reports on torture. No, they watch 24 because they, they want a break after work. But they are treated to this this false narrative that torture works. And then let's look at a show like Homeland. I mean, I, I could tell you something about every single season of Homeland that gives us uh, the impression that the CIA can do anything and that it, it's utterly out of control, but it's in the best interest of the United States. But I'll just talk about the last season, okay, the most recent season, which hopefully some of our listeners watched. Uh, in that season, an FBI agent uh, has turned and is working for the Russians, okay? It's very uh, timely and sort of relevant to the Russian uh, meddling or alleged meddling in our election. And the CIA, okay, and a team led by Carrie Bradshaw, the key character of Homeland, uh, as well as Saul Berenson, her boss, they capture this FBI agent who's an American citizen. They, uh, they interrogate him at a black site within the United States without a lawyer present. And then, in order to convince him to turn on the Russians, they actually poison him to thinking, into thinking he's having a heart attack because then he would think his Russian benefactors were actually trying to assassinate him, to shut him up. And this is an American citizen being tortured and led to believe that his heart is about to stop on U.S. soil uh, at the behest of the CIA, which based on you know uh, basic charter law is not supposed to operate domestically. So what is the point? I think it's the same one that you're making about the Hollywood community. It's that the television community these popular dramas, some of which are actually very well written and very well done, give us an impression of a CIA that is out of control, but in the best interest of the United States, where torture works, where torture is acceptable, where we just have to get used to it because that's what's necessary, that those sort of dark things must happen in the shadows in order to protect America. And it's a false narrative, and I fear uh, it leads Americans into giving too much leeway to the intelligence agencies to uh, essentially get off the rails and do whatever they want. Absolutely. No, I, I, I know that there's a certain, uh, well, how I'm thinking the word, uh, a certain uh, symbiosis between the people that make television and movies and stuff and the government, because in order to produce certain movies, I made some notes here about Black Hawk Down, there's no way you could have created that movie with any kind of visual authenticity without the help of the military. You know, Black Hawks, Little Bird Helicopters, all of the equipment that was needed to fit that into an actual story that seemed like it was actually happening, there was no way they could have made it. So I, I, in, in my reading, I see this, you know, that they, you have these creators who want to tell these stories that need to be told, and then they have uh, a CIA liaison or whoever it is that's blessed them off to tell this story, but has to make sure that certain details are pushed in one direction or another. And we're not talking about changing huge swaths of history. We're talking about tweaking it just ever so. Like you mentioned about the CIA and Homeland being that it's out of control, but they're out of control for us. And they do it in, in a way that we would find acceptable. That's not true. But that's the idea that they push. And it fits into to much simpler ideas than I think most people are willing to, uh, to believe. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It pushes a certain narrative. As soon as the government gets involved in a studio production, it's going to lose some of its... Uh, criticism some of its critical thinking and it's going to push a certain agenda because otherwise the government wouldn't agree to provide its massive resources behind the film 
It only does so because it wants a certain version of the military or a certain version of the intelligence community to be sort of highlighted by these makers of the films. And, and government largesse is an important part of getting a film done, getting a television show done, or like we talked about earlier, getting a university funded. I mean, tax dollars, especially in the DOD slash Intel community, are massive. I mean, that's the number one spending in the U.S. Uh, discretionary budget. And, uh, you know, it, as soon as they get involved, though, the storyline, even if it's only in minor ways, becomes suspect. And we have yeah. to wonder what's real versus what's uh, a government agenda that's being pushed on us. And it's also worth considering about that ordinary people, non, non-military, non-intel people, people who have no affiliation with the community, they're going to glean as much as they can about those those subjects from the TV and movies they watch. I know that Black Hawk Down was a huge part of the reason why I wanted to become a soldier. Never mind that so many things about the film just just didn't seem honest, but it really hit me. It really got to that point of it. And I go back over it and I think about different lines. It's like, wow, that, that, that really could fit into a recruiting poster so well. Why is it in a movie about warfare? Why is it in a movie about us fighting in Somalia, some of the nastiest fighting that special ops has ever done as far as in the public eye. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing about Black Hawk Down is it definitely highlights this nexus and this connection between the military and, and the intelligence community, uh, especially when we do see, see the Delta Force operators being portrayed. But what's interesting about a movie like that is it becomes a recruiting poster for the Army because really all it is is a story about the trials and tribulations of combat and the brotherhood that's built under fire yes and that's okay right that's a story worth telling but you know who's completely absent and lacks all agency in that film the thousands of somalis that are being gunned down yep i mean the, the movie makes no attempt to explain why is america here in the first place yep. why are these militias so hostile to america uh what, what is it that motivates them to go on the street and fight with ak-47s against uh, american helicopters and, and american special forces i mean the somalis are like a blank slate they're like a black box yep. in this film and yet we're watching thousands of them get mowed down, and we just assume that, well, that's that's what has to happen, right? And this, this, the story is really about the United States. And, and I think you could argue the same is true of the depiction of the intel community in so many of the films and television shows that we're, uh, that we're talking about. You know, the CIA, although it is often portrayed as flawed, is ultimately working in our best interest, and all of the foreign actors completely lack agency and are just, you know— uh, to be acted upon by this uh, beneficent uh, CIA, right? And and it, it's a it's a it's a very dangerous narrative because it eliminates context. Absolutely. And oftentimes, the most important context in a film is sort of the other side, or the story of the enemy, or the story of the civilian populace that's being acted upon. Well, there were there were some some interesting choices they made. Some that were really shitty, and some that were just I, I don't know why they chose that. But, um, for example, uh, diversification among units in that, in that film. In the actual Battle of Mogadishu, there were Navy SEALs, there were Air Force combat controllers, there were U.S. Army soldiers who were me- members of the 10th Mountain Division who were not Rangers and they weren't Delta Force. And then there was also a huge number of Pakistani and Malaysian troops. Remember the scenes in the movie where their armored carriers pull through and take everybody out of town. Now, that portion of the movie is minutes long, but... You and I both know the hours and hours and hours it would take for an armored convoy to go in and get people out of a hostile area. But yet they're only included in this tiny little section of it. And back to what you mentioned about the Somalis is that they're generally they're perceived as more barbaric. 
less human, and it also doesn't demonstrate the diversity of people that live in that area of Africa. It, it, it gave you a very specific language, a very specific skin tone. They were really wanting people to look at it as just this dark phantom Somali people, as opposed to being a people that actually have their own national identity. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You're, you're right. They're, they're portrayed as a, a barbarian other, uh, just sort of a, um, a, a dark, both literally and figuratively, enemy to be combated. And that's it. You know, that's it. The complexity of, of Somalia, the reasons for Somalia's state failure are utterly absent from that film, as, a, as is the role of the United Nations, which you mentioned, which is the Malaysian and the Pakistani. Yeah. yeah because yeah. Uh, actually, India, Pakistan, Malaysia, countries in the uh, Asian subcontinent are some of the largest contributors to UN peacekeeping forces in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas a country like the United States is much more hesitant to put its soldiers under the blue helmet, okay, to commit its troops to peacekeeping operations. Uh, but they played an enormous role in, uh, in Somalia. And I believe more Pakistanis were killed in ambushes in Mogadishu than were army rangers on uh, October 3rd. Uh, now, it didn't happen on October 3rd, but the Pakistanis, I believe at least 24 of them were killed in one massacre or, or one ambush. And so they, they bled a lot for the humanitarian uh, concerns of Somalia for the efforts to put back uh, Humpty Dumpty together. And yet they're completely absent from the story. And if they're there, they're just a sideshow. You know, they don't have any real authentic agency. I want to say that ambush happened before the third. I think that that was actually part of the precursor that got the Rangers in the Delta in, in country there that that. Those, those 24 were killed. But So my, my last thought about Black Hawk Down is about when it was released. And Black Hawk Down came out in the short period between September 11, 2001 and October 19, 2003 when we invaded Iraq. Um, DOD and the CIA definitely see these kind of films as recruitment tools. And... As I mentioned here, you know, it was my favorite film for a long time. It wasn't until I fully understood how historically inaccurate it was and how leaned it was to one side that I started saying, this is fucking bullshit. But for a long time, that was how, how I saw it. And I, I believe that that was an honest display of American military power at work and that they were actually trying to help people. And none of that is true. Absolutely. Um, I have, you know, something else I wanted to talk about in the Intel community um, is Gina Haspel and her candidacy and now her uh, approval as the head of the CIA. Gina Haspel is an interesting figure. Okay, bloody Gina. Uh, some people on the left have called her for her uh, relationship with torture and her previous roles in the post 9-11 environment. She got through. She uh, she got passed despite the fact that she was complicit in torture and actually commanded black sites where torture was committed in the post 9-11 period, particularly in the first administration of George W. Bush. Now, somebody as hawkish as John McCain came out and, uh, and called for the, for the Senate to not approve Gina Haspel, okay, charging that she was unable to address concerns with her role in the use of what was then called Enhanced interrogation techniques or EITs, but that's just a euphemism for torture. Okay McCain said quote. I believe Gina Haspel is a patriot who loves our country Okay, so he, he, he recognizes that she has served her entire career uh, At least purportedly in the interest of the United States, but then he follows that by saying however Her role in overseeing the use of torture 
by Americans is disturbing. And, quote, her refusal to acknowledge torture's immorality is disqualified. Okay, this is coming from John McCain, who was himself tortured by the North Vietnamese in the Hanoi Hilton during the Vietnam War, and who is the chairman of the Armed Services Committee. I mean, John McCain has basically never seen a country he didn't want to invade. Him and Lindsey Graham are probably the two most prominent hawks in the United States Senate, who always want more surges, always want more escalation, are always ready for the United States to engage in the next regime change. But even John McCain, probably because he'd been tortured, came out against Gina Haspel because of her role in torture. Furthermore, the only reason that Gina Haspel gets approved is that a number of Democrats, just a few, switched sides uh, and voted for her. And I think what this shows us is the bipartisanship of militarism. Mm-hmm. I, not a supermajority, but definitely a plurality of senators and also congressmen essentially support giving a blank check to the intel community and writing off the, quote, mistakes of the past and not prosecuting them. This all goes back to the essential torture debate, and it goes something like this. Gina Haspel and her supporters have told America, okay, have told the public, that yes, she was complicit in enhanced interrogation techniques, which they don't want to call torture, but is torture, by any international definition in international law and American national law. But they say she conducted the torture back when it was legal. Well, think about that for a second. Her argument is, I was just following orders. Whose orders? The President of the United States, through his legal counsel, John Wu was one of them, who wrote these memos, okay, that were never approved by Congress, were never approved by the, approved by the American people in any sort of vote. But the executive, the President said, and his lawyer said, that these enhanced interrogation techniques are allowed. And they listed them out, actually. One of them, slapping is okay, uh, confinement in tiny spaces, stress positions, and even waterboarding, right? There's this whole list of torture techniques. And how do we know that waterboarding is torture? We know because in the aftermath of World War II, the United States prosecuted and executed Japanese commanders who had waterboarded American soldiers. They called it the water cure or water treatment at the time, but it's precisely the same sensation of what the CIA conducted on alleged terrorists post 9-11. This torture debate, this I was just following orders debate, is very fascinating when it's attempted by an American intelligence agent like Gina Haspel. Why is that so interesting? Because that exact argument of I was just following the orders of my president or of my country as they then existed was the exact same defense used by Nazi war criminals and Japanese war criminals in the aftermath of World War II. The international community led by American judges, including the former Supreme Court Justice Jackson, explicitly rejected that argument explicitly rejected the I was just following orders argument. It's also been called the Nuremberg defense. Gina Haspel is not a Nazi, and she is not as brutal as the Japanese who conducted the Bataan death march on American prisoners of war. However, she is a torturer. She was complicit not only in torture, she also destroyed tapes and other evidence of the CIA's torture or ordered the destruction of those things. And she has attempted and victoriously applied the Nuremberg argument, and foisted this on the American people. And that's the story, guys. That's the big story that you're not getting in the mainstream media. Gina Haspel is not a Nazi, but she has a lot of blood on her hands. And she used the same defense as the Nazis to get herself approved as head of the CIA, as director of the CIA. 
This is an explicitly rejected argument in international law and by the United States in the past. But now, today, in the post-9-11 period, the American Congress, the Senate, and even the House, as well as most agencies of the federal government, are willing to accept the Nuremberg defense. That is profound, and that is ethically disturbing. As I was listening to you, I just I kept hearing lots of small examples of how our military-civilian divide has just almost eroded completely. Like, you know, the, the, the task that we see Bernie Sanders take some to when he does hearings needs to be how these things are handled. Ron Wyden would be a great example. Ron Wyden's on the Senate Intel Committee, and over the past decade or so, I've seen him just tear people a new one over our privacy laws and stuff. But even for him, there are certain things that he still votes for, he still signs off on. And that's where I think it, it's, you know, when, when you see the people that you would say they should be fighting the good fight and they have before, but they're not anymore, it, it really points out something to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there are 17 different intelligence agencies, I believe that's the count, in the United States government. There's an enormous amount of overlap between what the CIA does, what military intelligence does, what, unfortunately, what the FBI does, what the EA does. And some of that's good, right? Some of that's a good thing. There should be overlap. There should be communication. In fact, the lack of communication between the FBI and the CIA in particular uh, caused some of the, the gaping holes that the ter terrorists were able to essentially uh, thread the needle uh, and get through. Okay? That's how they were able to get into the country. That's how they were able to plan their attacks. So there, it's important for the various intelligence agencies to talk to one another. But do we need 17? Okay? It's very difficult to provide oversight of 17 different agencies. What I fear, and I think this is the overall theme of the episode that we're really getting at, is that after 9-11, because we were afraid, and it's understandable that we were, okay? I was a New Yorker. Those towers came down, nearly 3,000 innocent people were killed in the Pentagon and, and, and the vast majority in the towers. But after post-9-11, because we were so scared, as a government and as a people, we opened a Pandora's box. And I believe we unleashed these 17 intelligence agencies to do whatever they thought was best to protect America. And there was shockingly little oversight. And because of that, there were abuses. There was a militarization of the intelligence community, a community that is supposed to gather intelligence, okay, provide it to the executive branch, and then be acted upon, if necessary, by military force, which is, has complete oversight or should have complete oversight from the U.S. Congress, which resent, represents the people. I fear we're never going to be able to get the genie back in the box or put Humpty Dumpty back together again, that these sort of out of control three letter agencies, these various 17 intelligence agencies have gone rogue and there's not enough oversight because there's too much of a focus on secrecy. And when someone does blow the whistle, as we've talked about in so many episodes up to this point. They are vilified and even prosecuted by both Democrat and Republican presidents alike. So how are we to know what the CIA is doing in our name? I'll tell you who does know is the Pakistani civilians and wedding party members in Yemen who have been killed under CIA paramilitary drone strikes. They don't say, oh, it's not all Americans that are guilty. It's just that one CIA. It's that one agency that's guilty. No, they think America the red, white, and blue, 50 stars, United States of America was responsible for the death of my nephew, and I hate America forever. That's what I mean when I say that CIA operates in our name. Because whether we know they're doing what they're doing or not, whether we provide oversight or do not, they are inflicting death and destruction on various communities around the world. Now, sometimes that might be necessary, but we need to know about it. 
there needs to be a better system of oversight, judicial oversight and congressional oversight. That is why the founders created three co-equal branches of government. And I fear Pandora's box is open and may never get closed again. Yeah, no, I, 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 how do we, you know, and, and, and how do we ask people to, to deal with that fear, especially if they're veterans and they have now lived war experience that pushed them in the same direction, you know, that, that we, we want to, if we can look back at that through a, through a more innocent lens, that if something had different had happened for them back then, like I'm thinking of you and me right now, that how different would how different would your service have been the all the years that you've spent in how different would my six years as an MP had been not simply because of the act but because of the fear that followed and that carrying that feeling over into so many other things of parts of our society and especially parts of our military. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's, a, it's a really strong point all around because it it the effect of all that really did trickle down to the conventional army in so many instances. I mean, look at Iraq, for example. We would never have invaded Iraq if the intelligence community had not failed the American people. If the intelligence community had not gone rogue and basically worked directly as an agent of the president of the United States and especially the vice president, Dick Cheney of the United States, in order to provide uh, false or uh, lack of context intelligence information that led us into that war. And this is about the, uh, the false notion that Saddam was connected to al-Qaeda as well as the false notion that uh, Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. Those intel failures are what put 120,000 Americans on the ground invading Iraq and what kept 150,000 American soldiers at the peak uh, occupying and fighting an insurgency in Iraq. So that's the connection, right? That's the direct or the most obvious. There are others. This is the most obvious example of how this all flows downhill, how intel failure translates into militarism, which translates into military failure for the conventional soldier like you as an MP or me as a scout walking around the city like Baghdad, which we should have never been in the first place if it were not for the CIA and other three-letter intelligence agency failures that brought us there. Okay, And, and that's the kind of stuff, that's the pottery barn rule, right? That's Colin Powell called it. You break it, you buy it. The intel community was complicit in breaking a place like Iraq or convincing the president to break a place like Iraq. And then we, the conventional military, okay, the less cool, less, less, you know, tricky gear organization, we're the ones who had to bear the brunt of that. And for the most part, the vast majority of casualties in wars like Iraq and Afghanistan uh, were absorbed by the more conventional units rather than special ops or intelligences themselves. No, I, 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 I just wonder how different our lives and America would be, you know, that, that we, we, we can't control everything, you know, we couldn't control, I mean, we, we were, we were definitely involved in Osama bin Laden and his, and his, his choices up until pushing along 9-11 and, but there, there's always opportunities for us to make a change. There's always opportunities for us to say, we're not going to, and it's usually no, it's usually the answer is no, whatever the question is, as far as a military operation, a clandestine mission, it's usually saying we don't know enough. We're, we're concerned about too many people are going to get hurt, and the answer should just be no. But these days, it's much more often yes. The generic answer to any military, anything, anything we say could make it a little bit safer, a little bit harder, the answer is yes. And we need to get away from that. Absolutely. Yeah, what's the point of all this? What are we calling for? What's the so what? I think it's that we have to have more oversight over our intelligence community, that we have to 
demilitarize certain aspects of the CIA, um, put those military roles back inside the conventional Department of Defense forces so that they can have more intelligence, I mean, oversight of intelligence from the Senate and the House committees. Um, I think that we do have to try our best to get that genie back in the bottle. Until we do, we are always going to have a series of three-letter agencies spearheaded by the CIA fighting wars in America's name. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read. And remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.